My guest is Joachim Reiter. Joachim Reiter is the Chief External and Corporate Affairs Officer at Vodafone, a post he's had since April 2017. But prior to joining Vodafone, he was the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations and the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD. Prior to that, he spent more than 15 years in the Foreign Service of Sweden, including as Deputy Director General of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, an ambassador to the World Trade Organization, as well as working in the permanent representation to the European Union in Brussels and an EU negotiator with DG Trade at the European Commission. Welcome to the podcast, Joachim. So first of all, happy fifth birthday, because it's five years since you joined Vodafone this month. We're going to talk a lot about digital, of course, and the digital ambitions of the European Union, the digital decade as espoused by the European Commission. But before that, I want to talk a bit about your previous career, because I think it's very as I said in the introduction, it's clearly you have a lot of experience in that field. And at the moment, a lot of talk, as you well know, about the, the, the death of globalization or the, the, the rolling back of globalization and the, and the scrutiny of, of multilateralism more broadly and multinational organizations. What is your personal opinion on that, given your vast experience? Um, well, it's been long in the making, if you want, with the more um, confrontational uh, relationships, but also the, the tapering off of the willingness to collaborate. I remember when I was a WTO ambassador, even under the Obama administration, uh, the uh, chief um, or the ambassador of the, of the United States was talking about the fact that we were struggling. And remember, no, no one remembers anymore the Doha development round, you know, Doha, Doha development agenda of the WTO. But, you know, that failed long before we started talking about a sort of a new phase in geopolitics of deglobalization. So I think there, there, this has been, you know, the, the challenges of dealing with fundamental distribution of power and economic might and the, the redistribution that that implies, plus then how that needs to be translated into different distribution of responsibilities for upholding international order. That is something that governments have grappled with for quite some time. It's just that, you know, since Trump, but also with COVID and now with, with the, the geopolitical changes with the war in Ukraine, all of those trends have accelerated. So it puts the whole system under incredible pressure at this time. At the same time, you know, we have had periods where, you know, we have proclaimed multilateralism dead and reality is that, you know, our COVID response depended immensely on international collaboration. So in a number of international institutions, you're now talking about coalitions of the willing or plurilateral agreement. So it's not a binary development, but for sure we're in a transition period and quite significant transition period where we have to find new forms of collaborating internationally, which is, by the way, true for companies as well. Right. So as I said in the introduction, five years ago, you, you, you made the momentous decision uh, to lead the diplomatic service after a couple of decades, as far as I can see. Uh, in that world to join the private sector, but also to join Vodafone in particular. So why, why the decision to leave the public sector to go to the private sector and why, and why Vodafone in particular? The, 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 it's, it's a tricky question, but the, the short answer, because there's always a lot of, lot of motivations. In my case, it also involves the wife uh, because it's a family decision once you make changes. But the, sh the short of it is as a trade negotiator, which was de facto what I had spent my entire diplomatic career on, what you defend is national economic interest, which means that you sit very, very closely to uh, companies, enterprises, their interests, their investments abroad. Uh, you get very interested in the question around why different countries organize their economy differently compared to yourselves and, and the type of barriers they put in place that prevent your companies from being successful in, another, in, you know, in third countries. So you get very close to the corporate sector. And so I've been intrigued of 
could I do the same thing that I was doing government, but from a company point of view? Now then, if you come with my background from government, what you look at is heavily regulated sectors, obviously, because there you add more value to the company's bottom line, which means telecom is a natural sector to look at. And then in my case, you know, I'm, I, I, I come from a, I was, I was more international oriented. So obviously I wanted to join a company that had a very strong global outlook that had tentacles in many continents mm-hmm. and had a vision around how to make those changes that it's pursuing. And so I felt that Vodafone was a quite natural uh, uh, fit. Just a final point. I worked, my last job was in Ankhtar and Ankhtar was in charge for international collaboration on technology. So for mm-hmm. me, you know, the, the whole technology file, the way that, Africa, for in particular, still looks at mobile telephony as a fundamental transformer of society to, to something to, to empower people and make things better it was something that appealed immensely for me. So being able to join a company that, you know, or a sector that represents that, that sit at the cusp of a technology that has such a profound impact on people's lives felt very uh, gratifying. So that, that was the reason why I shifted. Right. OK, well, let's move on to digital. Um, Making Europe fit for the digital age is one of the flagship policies of the uh, van der Leyen Commission, as you well know. And uh, not so long ago, they revealed their plans for a digital decade. I mean, we know the EU likes to do things in 10 years, um, decades of this, decades for that. But how optimistic are you and how enthusiastic are you about this, the Commission's plans, the EU's plans for a digital decade? So um, I'm very enthusiastic about the plans. Uh, it's a separate question how optimistic I am that they will be met. Right. So there's two separate questions, but, but with respect to the fact that the EU had the political courage to rally behind setting a, a very, very, very ambitious plan for itself, I mean, covering not only one aspect of technology and digital, but actually the whole range from everything from skills to connectivity, uh, I think that was the right thing. And it was, it was uh, at the right time because we're just entering into a, a new investment wave and unlocking the full potential of 5G, which is fundamentally a very, very different, the, the impact it will have on society is much more than we've seen in previous mobile telephony generations. So it was the right thing to do it. The, the, where I have my concerns is around the feasibility of those plans in the absence of a change in approach and a change in mindset that we're calling for across Europe. Is it is it member state resistance, reluctance? Is it is it uh, differences of opinion between the member states? At the end of the day, it's the member states, not the Commission, which has to implement these plans. Uh, no, I think it, I, I don't think you can pin it down on member states versus say other institutions. Uh, I think I think I think it's 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 more profound in the sense that um, some member states we see are very keen to try to unpack how they take themselves out of where they are in the laggard position and, and, and utilize the digital decade target to sort of propel themselves. Um, others are n- not willing to have the same sort of comprehensive approach behind it. And yet, again, you, you, you know, in, at the European level, uh, um, the, the, you know, the, we're dealing with, a, a, we're at a critical juncture, which requires all of us to rethink our level of collaboration, how we partner with it between public and private, but also the type of tools that we deploy so as to be successful. And, and the degree by which people are willing to depart from past practices is, is not something you can pin on member states versus others. It's, it's much more varied across the, you know, around the table. But I, I, that's something that, that I have called for very, um, very vocally, is that actually the, the digital decade targets are the right targets they're very very ambitious but it requires all of us including the private sector to rethink how we best get there 
Well, you're, you're sounding the alarm quite early on in the process, aren't you? This, this Digital Brigade initiative is relatively young, and it would be a shame for all of us in eight or nine years' time to 2030 say, what a shame it didn't work out, as we'd, as we'd all hoped. So you say you're speaking out, but what, what, can, what can be done both by people in the private sector like yourself and your company and other players? Since you seem to have a good diagnosis of what the, what, the, what the potential problems are, you can't just sit on your hands for the next eight or nine years and then say at the end, I told you so, I was right all the time. Yeah, no, I, but, but also to be frank, what we're saying is that, that we believe that there is a need for also the private sector to play a different role. Which, so so there, there has been a past practice in the telecom industry that the industry has been quite reactive and I'm not talking about sort of individual company. As an industry, we're fragmented. We, uh, uh, in the past, we have been uh, many times not aligned across the industry on what is needed. That has sort of created conflicting signals to policymakers. So it's not only that this is a, there is a change on policymakers that needs to happen. Certainly within the industry, we are seeing quite significant change. The level of collaboration uh, in the industry and the willingness to collaborate, including to at times what, what is referred on the competition law as horizontal collaboration to drive innovation, homegrown innovations. There is a rethink happening. And which is the right thing, but but what we have called and the reason why we sounded the alarm early on, if I if I can if you can put it like that, mm. is the fact that we felt that it's easy to set targets, but if you don't align on your starting point, and are we really clear around where Europe sits? And that's where we have uh, where we have been giving a lot of data points so as to allow all players around the table to have the same appreciation of how significant the cur- the gap is between where we are including how the sector has evolved over the last 10 years and then where we need to get to. So it's, it's sort of, it's, 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 it's an exercise program. If you want to do something uh, significantly difficult in life, you need to assess your own uh, with an open eyes, your starting point. Right. Uh, so that's, what we're, that's why we have been quite um, frank about the fact that Europe has a, not a very convincing starting point in many, many, many of its member states. And across many, many parts of digitization. Right. Well, companies, as you know, are often the, the subject of regulation legislation by 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 the EU institutions, and you're quite heavily regulated, like many sectors, like all sectors. Uh, but also, you want, and rightly so, to have a, to have influence in policy making, like in this area. But is it? If I'm right, am I right in saying, listening to what you say, that one of the impediments to you, the industry? Uh, and your peers having a, a seat at the table of the policymakers is because you you had difficulty you yourselves, the players, the private sector's players, in coming up with a common line, a common understanding of what the issues are. Yeah, I mean, my, I have the benefit of not only being in the sector for five years, right? So, but I'll tell you, I'll, I'll make a comparison. When I was a trade negotiator in DG Trade and negotiated the car tariffs in the EU-Korea deal, I was, yes, I was lobbied by BMW and Mercedes and, you know, Daimler and, 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 and Volkswagen Group. But ASEA, so the whole of the European industry, had a, a high degree of alignment on the overarching objectives that it set for European negotiators, that it impressed on European negotiators. If you compare that when joining the telecom industry three, three years ago, or five years ago, you know, it was divided up between the access seekers in ECTA, it was divided up by the, by the incumbents in ETHNO, you have the uh, um, cable, uh, guys in, in cable Europe at that time. So it was a highly fragmented industry, mm-hmm. both with respect to its voice, and then it was fragmented in terms of its, its internal market. We have actually not an 
EU market for telecoms. We have national markets with quite unique national features, which is, again, not the same thing for most of the other sectors. And, and one of the things is that also is, you know, all sectors are heavily regulated. Well, well yes and no, all sectors are regulated, but I, I don't know many other sectors where policymakers still um, intervene in price setting to the extent that they do. I mean, I, it's not often that you hear uh, someone who regulates cars saying, oh, no, I think a Skoda should have a price of X. That's a completely common practice within the telecom industry. And, and, and so, so there are very, very large differences in regulation. And, and I think what, what, I, what is happening within the industry is that the European industry, doesn't matter if you're very national oriented or as us pan-European, we are rallying behind some common principles and common objectives because all of us are wedded to Europe becoming successful. And ultimately, that's where we align with the objectives of all policymakers, including national politicians or e-institutions, in the sense that we really do want the digital decade targets to succeed. Where there's a difference point of view or where there's a need now to have deep, more detailed discussions to align is so, so what is required? What are the concrete measures that needs to be put in place? Which, for example, you know, the Commission has been bold in launching the European Recovery and Resilience Facility with yeah. a huge emphasis on digital, which is exactly one of the right things to do. Now, it also is saying that you need to pride, crowd in private investment. So policymakers are turning to us and saying, can you invest more? And the simple answer to that question is, we would love to under the right conditions. So what are those conditions? And then we have to work through them. OK, we'll come on to the Recovery and Resilience uh, Facility in a moment, uh, Joachim. Before we do that, though, again, I, I, I press you, you seem, and I'm sure you're not alone in this, you seem to have a clear diagnosis of, of what the stakes are and where the, already the initial uh, obstacles are, potential obstacles, if you like. Uh, but do you find that, but nonetheless, that the, the policymakers are quite open to dialoguing with you at the industry to find to find common solutions or they are, are they again are they waiting for the industry to have a, a, a less as you said earlier less fragmented uh, offering no i think the, the so the industry is much less fragmented but so are policymakers if i if i can be blunt i, I think for me the horrible pandemic that we have suffered through has made the penny drop on everyone on how essential connectivity digital services and platforms are for the functioning of the economy. And, and by the way, it's not only the economy, for the functioning of society. Whether or not people could get access to healthcare in the midst of lockdowns was dependent on whether they were connected and they had the right digital skills and tools to get uh, such access. Um, same for education. So I think what I sense over the last couple of years is that there is a much broader willingness on both sides. And by the way, that's also on the industry side. The governments turn to us and say, can you help? And I think many of us uh, or many companies had more of an arm's length approach to governments in the past. But the reality is what once you realize how critical you are for every citizen's everyday life, it, it comes with the responsibility to do everything in your power and partner with whoever is needed to get it done. And, and so I, I sense that there was a watershed moment, both within governments and within industry over the last pandemic, which certainly has not sort of tapered off. Uh, as we have entered into more of an acute security and geopolitical crisis across Europe. So, yes, I sense there's a change. Now, the, the, there have been differences of view on, so how serious is the laggard status of Europe? And I think from our point of view, that's not a uniform accepted analysis. Like, for example, in the case of Vodafone, the numbers that we put on the table that we will be 10 years behind China or you know, 10 years behind the US or 10 years behind Australia or United Arab Emirates, that's not a uniformly accepted description of reality. 
but it's something that we want to put on the table and start a conversation around because for us, this is not about the competitiveness of the telecom industry. That's actually a competitiveness of the entire economy. And that's why it shouldn't be a conversation just with our industry. It should be a conversation with, say, the car manufacturers, the chemical industry, the machine the tool industry, on whether they find that the lack, the, the, the low rollout of digital solutions, including industrial applications that come from it, will hamper their competitiveness. And so that's why you find that digital topics no longer sort of being fronted only by companies like Vodafone or Deutsche Telekom is being fronted just as much by the European Roundtable of Industrialists yeah. because it's this strategic issue for the entire society. Right. Everything is digital now, as people are saying. Yes. Well, you mentioned the pandemic, and of course, one of the, the, the outcomes of the pandemic is this quite extraordinary uh, uh, resilience and recovery facility that you mentioned also, which is almost 800 billion euros. Um, am I right in saying, is it 30%? Or I always forget, or 40%, 20. which allocated to digital? So um, 20 is the minimum threshold. I think the latest count I had was 26% by de facto allocations, but I, I may be wrong on it. But it's minimum 20% is the requirement for digital. Okay, well, let's let's be quite direct and candid. I mean, this represents also, in part from the policy implications, business opportunities for companies like yours, like yours, obviously. So, again, the question I re-asked a question I kind of asked at the beginning of our conversation: How optimistic are you in the implementation, the execution, and the and the and the good governance of the allocation of not the spending of the funds under this RRF facility? Yeah. So. You know, it varies between member states because we, of course, have visibility of their different plans. But I must say I've been very, very impressed by the way that A, the Commission adopted the, the RRF, B, by the mechanisms they put in place, including the letters they sent to each member state identifying the gaps that exist under the DESI so as to steer them towards the areas that where they had that greatest uh, need to invest behind. And third, they have linked it to policy reform. So there, this is an area where I personally think it's inadequate reforms that are being proposed, but it's a very good start. The fact that there has been an understanding that, you know, when you deploy taxpayers' money for the acceleration of, say, digital in a, in a, in a, in a country, you need to create a dividend for the next generation. And the only way to create a dividend is that you get private sector involvement. And the only way to get private sector involvement is that, in fact, that it makes sense to, for the private sector to invest. So the logic behind how it's being constructed is the right one. And I must say, I've been very impressed by how everyone mobilized behind it then you know we are now at a point where member states are identifying the concrete tenders and plans exactly how that will go you know i think that's too early to say but with respect to the digital plans we've seen in most of the markets that where we exist uh, and the degree by which uh, the government has with a multi-stakeholder approach involving say not only the central government but you know, municipal governments or regional governments to discuss what are the right priorities, how they involved the educational sector or healthcare sector to discuss what are the priorities, including private sector, I think has been the right one. So I've been I've been actually very impressed of a number of member states on how they've driven this. And and one of the things that we also found is very, very encouraging is of course Vodafone has a good experience of multiple jurisdictions. Right. So we we so if we find something that worked really well, say in Spain on SMEs, which is a good example. I mean, in my view, it's a world-class solution that they developed in government there. We were quick to share that with Italy and Greece and other EU member states to say, well, why don't you have a look at what they did over there? And, and, and even try to facilitate a cross-market cross learning between government officials. I'm sure they talk to each other anyway, but you know, as a company, 
they are keen, of course, to know whether we are prepared to lean into whatever program they set, in, set up, because in the end, they want it to be able to purchase the digital tools and, and build the connectivity of which we are the main contributor. So how we share those learning, it was a, an amazing openness by all government officials I found to learn from each other. And so, so we, we are still at the early stage of the disbursement of the funds. And I'm sure it's going to be messy at times, but but I, the first part of the journey has been a very impressive, I must say. Well, I think even the most ardent critics of the EU would, uh, would, uh, would agree that, uh, I think it acknowledged this is quite a major achievement by member states to agree this uh, uh, facility. But of course, some member states agreed it on the basis from their point of view that it was a, a temporary one-off instrument, uh, not to become permanent, but uh, there are already voices calling for a, an RRF, a Recovery Resilience Facility 2.0, in other words, something rather more permanent. Are you, you in that camp? You're, you're asking a Swede, which uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think, for me, I don't have a comment on whether it should be a permanent instrument or not. I mean, the, the, for me, the question is, these resources that have been available in RRF 1.0, number one, are they being used in the best way possible? And the best way possible must be that they generate economic growth and betterment in those EU member states, which are currently struggling in a number of sectors, uh, so that when the payback for, you know, in the end, the other, ne next generation will have to pay for these loans. These are, these are no free money. There is no free money in anywhere. So we need to make all of us make sure that it generates the economic activity that then provides a dividend. So it actually pays off itself in terms of improved economic activity in, in the member states where the investments are going. So I think that's that's the key question. And that's why we've been impressed on policy reform. That's why we've been pressing on selecting the right projects where you have your handicaps, where you have the highest chance of a dividend. Uh, and and I, I, I'll stop there, Paul. I don't feel comfortable of discussing whether, you know, whether Europe should have more fiscal instruments or not. I don't think it's really my role or Vodafone's role to have an opinion. Right. Okay. We'll, we'll move on. We're coming to actually to the end of the conversation, Joachim, but I think we can't conclude this conversation without talking about Ukraine and uh, the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, do you have uh, any views as to whether the, the current crisis will, to some extent, uh, even if only temporarily, de derail some of the digital uh, uh, ambitions of the EU, or would it, on the other hand, maybe give a, a, an additional impetus to what the digital world can bring to to this uncertain and dangerous world we're now living in? I mean, this is a huge trauma to the political system, but also the societal society that we have in Europe. It's a, it's a traumatizing experience, um, and and for that reason, it's only logical that you start with the most pressing issues from the broader point of around defense security, but also around energy security, food security. Uh, it's logical that digital wasn't sort of at the, at the top of the agenda of the Versailles informal European Council. But I'm convinced that from a medium to long-term perspective, the war in Ukraine and the significant challenges it poses to European security and security doctrine that has existed since the Second World War and the second order global ramification that this war is having and already having across uh, many of our countries, you know, you know, we are very present in Africa, will require most governments, if not all governments, to actually prioritize digital even more. And that's in, in part driven because in actual fact, this, the war that we will see and the war of the future are hybrid. So you are going to have to put mm. much more emphasis around 
your resilience and security around networks and uh, the connected society that we are all, already living in. The way you disrupt adversaries will be simply through digital means. There's a loop, but in the end, most countries are going to ask themselves, are they competitive in this situation? Your relative competitiveness matters a hell of a lot more. So digital is one of the main levers by which people can drive their competitiveness. So I think, again, that will put digital higher up on the agenda. And then you add things like long-term food security, long-term energy security in Europe requires you to utilize digital tools so as to achieve the objectives. Everyone knows if you digitize agriculture, you will be actually able to cut the, the amount of fertilizers. And if you digitize energy systems and energy distribution systems and, and invest in energy uh, efficiency, of which ICT technology is a main lever, then obviously you will also address your strategic dependencies that have been exposed in this war and in this security crisis. So, so I would differentiate between immediate response to the very traumatic experience and the devastating, horrific uh, things that we see in Ukraine and the right to response there, which digital is not top line issue. But the minute you get under the hood and start working through how do we as Europeans navigate through this well going forward, I'm sure that digital will actually be among the top priorities, not only by the European Commission, but also by EU member states. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Joachim Reiter, thank you very much for your time.